0: Greetings to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I bring greetings to you on behalf of Restoration Church and right there in the middle of it all, Northwest DC. As I often get told when I told that when I leave the city, like, oh, I'm glad you're there. Uh, But we are glad to be there. The Lord is doing great things and uh, we're grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to come and uh, open up God's word and just walk through it uh, with you. Now, when Stephen came to the church that I have a joy of pastoring, uh, he Uh, took the time to, well, make fun of me in front of my own congregations, much to my great surprise. He had pictures and everything. Uh, Some of you were there. And uh, I'm going to show my qualification as a pastor by not doing that and showing self-control. Because I would love to be able to display some things of Stephen, but to be honest with you, I don't have many. Uh, But I'm grateful for my brother he is a great brother to me. I have learned a great deal from him. He's a great encouragement to me. And I hope that you all have enjoyed the short time that you have had him as your pastor. <clears throat> In many ways, he's pastored me. So uh, I'm grateful for him, grateful for the opportunity to come and uh, let he and his family. He's got plenty. To, he needs to rest, doesn't he, with all those kids? <laughs> so... Um, So uh, we walked through the book of Mark, our church did, a little while back, and at the conclusion of that series of just walking verse by verse through Mark, we tried to wrap it up because it took a while to go through that, 16 chapters, and I preached one sermon that basically walked through the whole book, and so we're going to do the whole book of Mark this morning. Uh, So we're just going to read the first verse, I'll read all the way through, (laughs) we'll walk through it, so let me encourage you to, to... Probably just put your Bibles aside. Maybe open up to the first chapter so you can see that there. But I'm going to move around a lot. Um, So um, if you have any questions or want some of those scripture afterwards, please feel free to come to me and ask me for those. Let me pray for us as we get going. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather, to worship, to exalt your holy name thankful we are that we have a word from you how thankful we are that you have spoken that you have sent your son that we have a word that testifies to the truth God there are places this morning where there is no Bible no Christian no church you could walk for miles and miles and days even and not run into one and so God we're thankful that the gospel got to us and we pray for those that maybe do not have the gospel this morning that are here. Lord, may they receive it and believe it. So we thank you for the King. We thank you for the kingdom. And we pray it would even advance in our hearts this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we evaluate the stories of sort of our culture, we run into stories like Cinderella You know, Cinderella, who had a a mean stepmother and some mean sisters. Uh, Then Cinderella had a fairy godmother who steps in. She gets a prince. And then she lives happily ever after, right? And then we get the story, maybe for those guys in the room, we love the story of Star Wars. we got the rebel alliance fighting against the evil empire and the, the rebels... Uh, we have a spider here in the pulpit. I'm not sure what to think of that. Never had that happen before. Uh, trust that's not from the Lord. So we have in Star Wars, the rebel alliance is fighting against the evil empire. The rebels overcome and they defeat the evil empire and they live happily ever after. Then you get the more recent Lord of the Rings where you have Dark Lord Sauron and the good and peaceful Hobbit and his friends who destroy the evil ring and then they go on to live happily ever after. Then we get the romantic movies like Pride and Prejudice where Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy, they fight a good bit, but they eventually live happily ever after. So I think we love these movies because they identify with our own lives. Only they're maybe a bit more bigger, more heroic, but it's the same tale at the end of it all. Uh, in your mind, we, you probably think something like this. If I could just have X and I could just defeat Y, then my world would be perfect. And I would live happily ever after. We love these stories because they are tapping into a story that we all instinctively want a wonderful king who gives us a perfect kingdom. And that's what the story of Mark is about. It's about a king and a kingdom, only this story is true, it's real. It happened, and it is happening. And so Mark shows us that Jesus Christ, he is the hero, he is the king, he comes to fix a broken world. And when we open up the book of Mark, we pick up, sort of like Star Wars, we pick up right there in the middle of the story and we see from the very beginning that God is holy and we have all rebelled against His rule and it's brought destruction into the world. And yet instead of leaving us in our sin, the king comes down to reestablish His kingdom. He leaves His throne and He comes and makes a payment that only He could make. Trades in His robes for rags. That his people might, sh- might know his kingdom again, giving God the glory that we were made to give to him. And so as we open up this story, we want to see what's there for how it has come to us. We don't want to reinvent the story. We want to see it for what it is. We want to have it revealed to us, the person and work of Christ. Christ the king and his kingdom. That's what's going on in the book of Mark. And so let's begin here with the king, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king. But the question comes, what kind of king is he? So Jesus is the king. That's one of the point of the book of Mark. But what kind of king is he? Well, to begin with, the king is a man. We notice in Mark chapter 1 verse 13 that he is tempted, just like we are. He is moved to pity in chapter 1 verse 41 in healing of the leper. He gets angry even in chapter 8, verse 33 for Peter attempting to deflect his mission. He gets angry at the Pharisees for their hardness of heart towards the the man with the withered hand in chapter 3. Of course, the famous time when Jesus gets angry, he overturns the tables in the temple because of false worship. Jesus is a man in that he gets fearful in chapter 14 in Gethsemane. He got tired. He fell asleep on a boat. He enjoyed the company of others. He was abandoned by his very closest of friends he felt forsaken by his heavenly father he was betrayed by a close friend even in judas he had a mother he had an earthly father he had brothers he had a job and that he was a carpenter he was full of joy and that he taught those who received the kingdom to respond in joy he's the king of the kingdom and so he must be the fullness of joy which is what he talks about in john 15 And even in the midst of suffering, we find that he asks, Why, God? And of course, we know that he's a man and that he suffered and that he died. Jesus did. And so the author clearly wants us to see that while Jesus is the Son of God, He is also like us. He identifies with us. In Hebrews chapter 14, verse 15 and 16, it says this. It says, For we do not have a high priest, referencing Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, in light of the fact that He has been tempted as we are, in light of the fact that He identifies with our weaknesses, let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And so, though Christ was royalty, he did not remain in that bastion of boutique, as it were. He took off his robes and he put on rags. He left the castle and became homeless. He left abundance and became hungry and tired. He left per- perfection and was exposed to want. He left praise and took on mocking, and yet he never sinned. He is a king of grace, this king. And every religion who worships God cannot make this claim. Other theistic religions have their God make demands upon them in this life that God has never been exposed to. He sort of remains in the castle, as it were, but not the God of the Bible. He is intimately familiar with our struggles. He knows them well. John Stott, an author, says this. He says that in in a world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? But not Jesus. Not our God. He knows our joys, our pains, our sufferings, our frustrations, our delights. He is intimately familiar with them. Jesus, in Mark, in the book of Mark, is not some stoic, rubberized sort of marble man. He has skin. He laughs. He cries. He gets frustrated. He's real. And this has been so comforting to me. I got an email yesterday that my grandfather, who will turn 85, has cancer, and he will die within weeks. What do I do in that? I have so much hope because the God that I know knows what it's like to lose a loved one. So I can mourn those who have hope. My King knows what it's like to go through those moments. And so I don't know what you came in with this morning when you walked into this room. I don't know what's on your mind. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I know that some of you carried in a huge rock when you walked in the building this morning. Some of you have been abused and betrayed. Some of you have lost a loved one. Some of you are overwhelmed by school or work. Some of you are despair or you're anxious. Some of you have recently had a friend disappoint you. Maybe some of you are saying right now, why, God? So did Jesus. So did Jesus. The Jesus of the book of Mark knows all of these things. And yet he never fails in the midst of it all. By his sacrifice, he can empower you through those trials to persevere for the sake of his name. Now, mind you, Jesus Christ in the book of Mark and in the Bible at large, is no lucky charm that you just sort of get whatever you want. Jesus doesn't let you treat him like that. He has suffered just as we have that he might cause us to be residents of a better kingdom. His kingdom, not our kingdom his kingdom he's the king we're not the king though we try to climb up on his throne often but the king left his lofty chamber and knows life here in the slums he left uh, that chamber in order to show us a better way to show us his kingdom is better than the one we are trying to build he vacated his throne so that you would vacate your throne but the king was not just a man The king, according to the book of Mark, was also God. The king is God. So the author saw him that way. Look there in the very first verse. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. So right from the beginning we should know what this book is about. It's about Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He Jesus Christ is ascribed the name of God in chapter one verse three. This is a great verse, book uh, verse, by the way, to set aside for those that come knocking on your door that have ties and black ties and black coats and things of the like. Just pull this verse out. It's very clear. Mark chapter one verse three. This is referencing the uh, 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 John, who it's pointing to John in prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. That's talking about John the Baptizer. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the what? Prepare the way of the Lord. The word there is Yahweh, the one holy name of God. The same name that God gives to Moses. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? I am the Lord. I am is what that means. And so the name of the Lord, the holy name of God is ascribed to who? Who's John the baptizer preparing the way of? Jesus so Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is God. He's the Son of God. We, we see that throughout the book of Mark that God the Father saw Him as His Son. If you look right there in verse 11, right in the same chapter, we see the baptism of Jesus. In verse 11 it says, And a voice came from heaven. This is the Father speaking. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We see that Jesus Christ, the King, is God in these things. We see that He's God in that He rose a girl from the dead. He healed the sick in chapter 1, verse 34. He claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now keep in mind, He's claiming to be the Lord over a holy day. We see that He uh, has creation to obey Him and Him calming of the storms, amongst other things. The demons even obey Him and bow down to Him and ascribe Him as the Holy One. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. He saw Himself as the fulfillment of the coming King, the coming Messiah. Chapter 14, verse 62, on the trial, Jesus sees Himself as that fulfillment. And of course, we see that Jesus Christ, in that He is God, also is able to forgive sin. And only God can do that. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read it verse 1 down to 7 and when he returned to Capernaum after some days it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room not even at the door and he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men and when they could not get near him because of the crowd they removed the roof above him And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, even the Pharisees recognized what Jesus was doing. He was claiming to be God in that he was able to forgive sin. Scribes themselves saw the divinity that Christ was claiming of himself. I mean, imagine this, folks. Imagine that I was sitting out in the parking lot and I backed my car into your car. I'm the one that falls and I look at you and I say to you, well, I forgive you. You would say, "What? you have no place to forgive me. But that's what Jesus is doing. He claims to be the one who is offended against He's able to forgive sin in that he is God. So Jesus clearly sees himself as a divine king, the king of the world, the king of heaven and of earth. Not simply a good teacher. Not simply one way to God, but the way to God. Because he is God in the flesh. This is what the author is telling us. We see that again in chapter 1, verse 1. This is what he's about. And so when we look at Jesus in the gospel according to Mark, in this book, we are left with one of two decisions as to how we're going to deal with Jesus. Either he was a crazy, crazy, self, crazy person who thought himself to be God, or he really was who he said he was. Those are really the only two options. If he really was the king, he really is the king, then we cannot be neutral towards his lordship because he came with a mission. He came preaching, repent and believe the gospel. You heard my brother read this earlier. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He came with a mission. If he is the king, if he is fully man, fully God, he came with this mission preaching the kingdom of God in the gospel and he's preaching this gospel, repent and believe. That is to turn from your sin that violates his character and turn to Christ who through his work allows you to reflect his character. We might say put off sin, put on righteousness. You see, Jesus doesn't allow you to believe him to be king and then just live life as you want. He calls for conformity to his kingdom, to his kingship. He calls for that. He means to tell us that we are not the king. He is the king. And so we must live by his way, not our own way. We don't get to define it. And so... The way we gain faithfulness, obedience, righteousness is through repentance and faith. Now we're going to see this in a minute, but Jesus says it is impossible to have righteousness on our own. He has come to make us righteous by his righteousness, by his faithfulness. So trust him as king, obey his ways, turn from your attempts at being king. And of course, he can make this demand because he himself is the king. He was faithful. We are not faithful. This this king was fully man. This king was fully God. And we know also that not only was he fully man and fully God, he is a benevolent king. Christ is calling us to a better kingdom, he's not calling us to a dictatorship. A good king, a king that can be trusted. Not like the other kings who just want to demand your allegiance and then just use you. He's not an evil dictator that can't be trusted. No, he's pushing you into freedom. He is making uh, the world that we all want, Jesus is. He's pushing us into that happily ever after that those stories are calling us to because he is the image of God. And so that instinct that loves the happily ever after, that loves those stories, is perfectly pictured and embodied in the person of Christ, the King. And He is a fully God. He's fully man. He's benevolent, and he's compassionate and merciful, this King. He told Legion, some of you may recall, in chapter 5, he told Legion who... He cast out demons from. He said to him, go home, Jesus said to Legion. Go home after healing him. Go home and tell friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. He's a merciful king. The blind man Bartimaeus in chapter 10, verse 48. Bartimaeus asked for mercy to be healed and Christ grants him mercy and he heals him. And upon his coming to the shore for some rest... He saw the throngs. Look at chapter 6, verse 34. He sees the throngs and he says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Or when the crowds had followed him for days listening to his teaching, in chapter 8, verse 2, he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And so see, Christ is not just compassionate about our spiritual needs, but even here he's compassionate about caring for their physical needs as well. So this is the same king who said to a little girl who he raised from the dead, Talitha kum. You know what that means? Honey, get up. That's what kind of king he is gentle, compassionate, merciful king. His becoming flesh and dwelling among us to rescue us clearly communicates, you can trust this king. He never fails. He is also an innocent king. The Jerusalem council attempted to try him because they disturbed his leadership. And yet chapter 14, verse 56 and 59 makes very clear None of their charges agreed. Chapter 15, verse 14, uh, Jesus gets handed over to Pilate. Pilate asks him if he was a king, and he said that he was. And after Pilate speaks with him, what does he say? I find no fault in him. He's innocent. And so though a merciful, compassionate, and innocent king, he was handed over just as he said he would. He said he was going to get handed over. And so this king walked into the furnace for us and he didn't even have to. He willingly laid down his life. This was the mission of the king. I mean, this king is a king of love. Mark chapter 12 verse 30 says... And you shall love, this is Jesus talking, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so the most important command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. No one, no one obeyed this more than this king, Jesus. He embodied what it means to love. He loved God and he loved neighbor by offering up his life for his neighbor in order that they could love God. And so that we, he did this so that we might know what true love is. That We might know what kind of God that we serve. Have you ever thought about that? That the clearest declaration of God's love for us is a bloodied son hanging on a cross. This was only possible by having a king show us what love is, by offering up himself for us. And of course, the standard, since he is holy, God, the standard for this king is perfection. The king is perfection, though we all try. None of us here are kings. We try to act like it, but everybody knows we're not. We even know we're not. We don't tell people that this king, he was perfect. He was perfect. Now, this is evidenced by our continued, our failures are evidence of our attempting to rule our own kingdom. Because we think that happily ever after thing that we want, we think that sort of we can somehow enact it by being the king ourselves. And we somehow, by us doing this, somehow we know that there's a better way. Things have to be better. And so many people move To the city that I pastor in, in Washington, D.C., because they want a better king to follow. That's why they move into there, so many of them. And every four years in this country, we see millions passionate for elections. Why? Because they want a better king. Imagine, Imagine if a king traded a White House for a cardboard box or no home at all. Imagine a king that doesn't just establish laws, but a king that obeys them for us. Imagine a king that doesn't care for only the wealthy, but also the downtrodden. Imagine a king that doesn't just make speeches, but he becomes the speech itself. (laughs) Who doesn't just tell you what love is and does, but the king demonstrates love for us. Imagine a king that doesn't just talk to us about how things need to be changed, but he becomes the mechanism of change himself. Imagine a king who doesn't demand your allegiance from a castle, but instead he woos you into his kingdom by becoming one of you. Hmm. Yes, imagine a king that not only establishes guidelines of his kingdom, but in your disobedience of him, takes on the punishment for you just so that you could enjoy his kingdom. That's a great king. That's the king that the gospel, according to Mark, is teaching us about. And so we need not imagine a king like this. You can read about him in this book. His name is Jesus. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, wonderful counselor, mighty God. He is not a figment of our imagination. These ideas that we all want to see embodied are bound up in the person and work of Christ, our King. I encourage you, friends, live for Him. Trust Him. Look to Him. He will not fail you as a good King. Now, this world may fail you. This world may be difficult, but this world has a true and forever King who will never fail you. Look to Him. Trust Him. Live for Him. No matter what news that you are dealing with, He tastes it. He knows what it's like. He has overcome it. Remember what Jesus says? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. The King, Jesus Christ, spoke of freedom and a better kingdom. That's what Mark is picturing for us. He tells us who the king is and he tells us what the king is like. And he also tells us what the king's kingdom is like. And what we find as we move from that king into the kingdom is we find that the kingdom reflects the king. So through the life and ministry of Christ, we get a glimpse into the kingdom. And so first we learn Christ's kingdom is not of this world not according to an established earthly kingdom, just as we see in the news all the time, right? Earthly kingdoms rise and they fall. All earthly kingdoms reflect imperfect and temporal kings, but Christ's kingdom reflects the king of glory. The king who knows what it means to be a man, but is God. A king who is eternal. A king who is compassionate, merciful, and eternally loving. Our king who... We all instinctively want to follow. Why? Because we were created in the image of God. That's why it's instinctive. And so those who reject this king, they do not know true love because God is love. Now, what does this kingdom look like? Well, it's the kingdom that we all instinctively long for. It's the kingdom that stories are talking about. See, nobody likes the healings of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? Now, they may not believe in them, but everybody likes the healings of Jesus. They think it's a good thing. Why? Well, I think we have an answer for that. But we see that in the kingdom, we have pictures of what that kingdom is like in the ministry and work of Christ. We see him healing the leper in chapter 1. We see the paralytic get healed in chapter 2. We see the man with withered hand in chapter 3 get healed. He heals the women, woman, woman who has been bleeding for twelve years. He raises he raises Jairus's da- dead daughter in chapter five. Uh, he heals the sick in Gennesaret. He heals a deaf man in chapter seven, a blind man in chapter eight. He takes evil a spirit out of a boy in chapter nine. We all think these things are good. Everybody does. Why do we all agree to that? It reflects the image of God that we were created with because the God that is, the God that always will be, he is a God of life. He is a God of health. He is a God of perfection, not destruction. And so why does Jesus heal? Is it to affirm his deity? Is it to affirm his anointing? Well, yes, in part, but there's more as we think about his kingdom. Equally important, as we think about the kingdom, these healings picture his kingdom. See, in Christ's uh, perfected kingdom, there is no blind, there is no dead, there is no paralytics. In Christ's kingdom, there is perfection, no distortion, no sin. It was sin that brought in defection, and by the sacrifice of the king, he defeats sin and destruction. He allows a better, a restored kingdom to come. A very good kingdom. Remember that language from Genesis 1? God created it and it was very good. Sin made it bad. And so Christ's payment for sin on the cross allows for that creation to be very good again. So the miracles of Christ are like peepholes into the doors of heaven that allow us to see what a world without sin and death looks like. That's what's going on in those healings so jesus obedient sacrifice of his life on the cross was received as a down payment to usher in the restoration of all things acts chapter 3 his resurrection gives us a glimpse of what even our bodies will look like no more death this king brings life that's what his kingdom pictures in his kingdom every tear is wiped away and so we have a king of love, compassion, and mercy who lays down his life for his subjects. And so we think about that kingdom, and you're listening to that kingdom, and you say to yourself, How do I get that kingdom? That sounds wonderful. And the answer Christ makes so clear in Mark is by repentance, turning away from sin, and trusting in the King. Not works not your works. We have the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 27. And the rich young ruler, he asked this exact same question. How do I get into this kingdom? How do I get eternal life? He asked Jesus that exact same question. And Jesus responds by telling him to obey all the laws and the rules. And the rich young ruler says, I've done that. I can't help but think right about there. Jesus is like, right But Jesus, seeing that the ruler is missing the point of the law, he says, the Bible says that he says that Jesus loved the rich young ruler. He loved him and tells him to sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and follow Christ and his kingdom. And what does the ruler say? No, I won't do that. His riches were his idol. He loved them more than Christ and his kingdom." And, of course, Jesus says that it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uh, says this. And, of course, the disciples are sitting there listening to the story thinking that, well, we thought that rich people sort of illustrated the fact that this was the kingdom. And they've sort of arrived. And now Jesus is saying, no, it's actually not. And so the disciples are perplexed. And they said, well, how do we do this? How do we get into heaven? If we can't sort of be good and have all this other stuff come to us, how do we get in? And Jesus responds, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With God all things are possible. So in other words, it is impossible to work your way to the kingdom. That's what empty religion tries to do. Do this enough. If you do enough good stuff, come to church enough, read your Bible enough, whatever, then you'll get in maybe that's what empty religion says but that's not the gospel god has god has to make you a resident only he can make that possible that's what jesus says and so the rich young ruler he treasured treasured his things more than the king and ultimately he wanted to add some jesus to his tiny little temporal kingdom and jesus doesn't let you treat him like that he is the king he is the ultimate treasure And so until you trust, believe, have faith in him as the king of all, then you stand on the outside of his kingdom. So you enter the kingdom by faith in the king, not by faith in yourself. Turn from your assaults on his kingdom through your sin. Repent, turn away from them and turn to the work of Christ. Trust that. This is what Jesus has been preaching. It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, that he came to preach. And the content of his message is in that verse that we read, Mark 1, 14 and 15. To repent, turn away from your sins, turn away from your attempts at self-rule, to turn away from your attempts to sort of build your own little happily ever after as your being the king of the kingdom. And believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Believe that you cannot do it. And that you trust wholly the King of the kingdom who was fully God and fully man and lived a sinless life, went to the cross and made the payment for our sins though He did nothing wrong, went into the tomb and three days later rose from the dead. And all those who turn from that sin trust in Jesus Christ, believe He is the King, you're not. His finished work grants you acceptance into His King. I was sharing the gospel with a man yesterday in Columbia Heights, where some Hispanic people are. We're trying to plant a Spanish-speaking church. And he was saying to them, I've lived a good life, he said to me. And I asked him, "What would he? What would, if God were to ask him why he should get into the kingdom of heaven, what would he say? And he said, I don't really have an answer. And I said, well, I'd like to tell you what I'd like to say, if he asked me that question. If he said, Nathan, why should I permit you into my kingdom? I told him this. I said, his name was Walter. I said, Walter, I would tell him this. I said, I'd say to God, I don't deserve to be in your kingdom. I've done nothing right. I told him, I said, I'm even a pastor of church. I don't deserve access into your kingdom. But I have good news, Walter. I would say to God, listen, I do not deserve to enter your kingdom, but I trust Christ. I trust his work on my behalf that I might come into your kingdom and I know that you accept your son because we see that you accepted that sacrifice through the resurrection. That's my answer, Walter. Walter did not give his life to Jesus yesterday. We pray that he would. But the point is, folks, you cannot create a kingdom of perfection. You're a really bad king. So am I. But a good king came for you, took your punishment on the cross, though he was sinless. And through repentance and faith, you get to be with the king in his kingdom. That's what the author is trying to show us in Mark. In Mark, those who are healed always understood two things. You can go back and read through the book of Mark. They always understood two things. One, they can't heal themselves. And two, they trusted Jesus to do the healing for them. I mean, think about the story of the bleeding woman in uh, uh, Mark 5.26. She said that she suffered from these physicians. I mean, she'd been going to these physicians. She'd been trusting all these physicians to make her better. And what does she ultimately trust in? Jesus. He's the one that heals her. That's what it means to have faith. Your sin keeps you from God. So stop, friends. Stop trying to atone. Stop trying to make payment for your own sin and trust Christ and His payment for your sin. Look to Christ who bore your sin for you. And lastly, briefly, what do we do with all this? Christ is the King. He's breaking in the kingdom. He's bringing about the restoration of all things. His ministry is that peephole into the kingdom of heaven where all things are healed. What do we do? Well, the answer, Christian, your life should likewise be a glimpse into the kingdom just as christ was your life should be that people whereby those outside the kingdom can look in that means that your life should be different and now granted we all fail and fail often right and so in those moments we need to do the same thing that got us into the kingdom we're always repenting and believing and so where we fail in front of others we confess that sin to god and to them but we continue to picturing Christ's kingdom. And you say, that's great, Nathan. That's great preacher rhetoric. I don't have any idea what that means. I can't go and heal somebody. I mean, I'm not going to walk out somebody and, you're healed. And it didn't work. I'm not picturing the kingdom. I mean, what does this look like, Nathan? Well, turn with me and read as we get ready to close in chapter 8, verse 27. We have our answer, I think. Eight I'm going to read to Verse 32. Go into the nations. What? But here he's saying, don't tell anybody. you got the right answer. Don't. Shh. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Do you notice the distinction? The confession of the Christ and what comes immediately after that. What's going to happen? Verse 31. And he began to teach them about the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus... He gets the right answer and he tells them to be quiet. Right? Doesn't this sort of confuse you guys when you're reading your Bible and, and Jesus heals people and you're like, shh, shh, shh. Well, I thought we were supposed to make disciples of all nations, Jesus. Like, what's going on here? Why is he so interested? He got the right answer. He's the Christ. Why doesn't Jesus say, you got it right, now go tell everybody. No, he's like, shh. And then he begins to teach him exactly what's going to happen. Why is Jesus doing this and what does this have to do with our life inside the kingdom? Jesus, folks, was protecting the message of the kingdom. Jesus wanted to make crystal clear that the message of the kingdom is not Jesus heals. He wanted to make really sure that that was not the answer. That's why he was telling people to not be quiet or telling them to be quiet. He wanted to make sure that the message of the kingdom was not Jesus heals. He wanted to make sure that they understood and they saw and it went into place. The message of the kingdom is Jesus paid. That's the message. That's the thing that you need to go and declare. And so once that happens... You then, that's why you get Jesus coming out, Matthew 28, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. You know, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. I have been faithful. I've done what I was supposed to do. I have fulfilled. I've done the gospel. I have made a way. The veil has been torn. It's all done now. And so the message is not go and heal folks. Maybe that could happen, but that's not the ultimate message. The ultimate message is, like it says there in verse 31, He's the Christ. He has suffered many things to bring people into the kingdom. As him as our king, Jesus paid. That's the answer. That's why he's telling people to be quiet until it happens. And once it happened, once he did make the payment, then it was public. And so kingdom residents live by picturing the work of their king, by thinking of others as better than themselves. That's what Jesus does in the gospel. By thinking of their neighbor as better than themselves. And all this done is done as a worship-filled, trusted response of love for our King who made the payment for us. That is the way of the kingdom. That is the picturing of the kingdom on earth. Not simply serving for serving's sake, serving because we have been served by our King. That's how you live out this kingdom. That's how you live under his authority. Look at verse 34 right there in the same chapter. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him. All right, now we're getting back into bigger crowds. And his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his torture mechanism, his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? See, the same lesson was taught to Christ's disciples in Mark 9, where the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. Y'all remember that? Who's the greatest? And Jesus says, listen, you're missing it, guys. If anyone would be first, he must be last. That's what it's like living in the kingdom in this world. That's exactly what Jesus, our king, did for us. He became last that we might become first. He was an innocent king who laid down his life for guilty subjects for the sole purpose of ushering us into his kingdom. We find complete satisfaction in our God, something that we couldn't do, something that only the king could do. And so though he was first, he became last. Isn't that what Jesus says? For I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So out of a response of love towards us, we show love to others. Move this message of the king and his kingdom into the world that they might come to know and delight in the king and his kingdom. This restoration that is slowly breaking in, that is here and will be perfected upon his return. And so, Christian, devote your life to the king by reflecting on his work and responding with a life of service to others for the sake of his kingdom and the glory of the king. And if you're here this morning and you do not believe, Maybe you came in here thinking that the gospel was Jesus' heals. Maybe you've never really understood the gospel. Maybe you thought that sort of this, all of this depended on you, and you always are failing. You're thinking maybe you came to church this morning because you're like, well, maybe, you know, maybe this will sort of be that down payment for that thing I did bad last night. Maybe you're beginning to understand this morning that your trust is not in your work, but it's in Christ's. And maybe that's happening this morning to somebody in this room for the first time that is true of you, let me invite you to come and speak with maybe the person that brought you. Come speak to me. Speak to one of the other men here, one of the women here, and ask them what it means to follow Christ. Go to lunch today and ask them, what does it mean to follow Christ? Can you help me understand this gospel a little bit more? Will you walk me through the book of Mark and just help me see this? That would be a great thing to do. But don't leave here without swearing sovereign allegiance to the sovereign king and living a life in faithfulness to his kingdom. Let's pray and exalt our King's name. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Christ the King. We thank you for the little glimpse that we have into his kingdom through your word. Thank you for the glimpse of your kingdom, even in this room this morning. A body of people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, singing your praises, finding strength to make it through. So, God, I pray for those that have not yet believed that they would and for those that do believe that they would be servants who display and herald a message that Christ paid for our debt. We love you. We thank you for your sovereign care for us. May we return in extreme and worship to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.